uh, happy you're here. I know that a, a lot of uh, campus ministries were doing their retreats this weekend, so it's good to have you here uh, with us this morning. If you have your, your Bible, go ahead and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. That's where we will be this morning. Uh, if you have not gotten a scripture journal yet from us, uh, just go ahead and raise your hand, and if you want one, uh, we would like to give that to you as a free gift. Uh, we uh, love God's Word here and want you to have that and have the ability to take notes or jot down anything that the Lord may be speaking to you in our time this morning. All right, so I'm going to start out this morning. Uh, if you guys would humor me and interact with me here to start, I would really, really appreciate it. I'm going to ask some questions, and I know oftentimes I ask for questions, and then like I just get blank stares from everybody in the audience. These are not rhetorical questions. I actually want responses. So, And let me apologize ahead of time. If you're here this morning uh, and you are a parent and you're with your kids as I ask these questions, I apologize for the discussions that you're probably likely going to have to have with your kids uh, later on after this kind of little exercise. So how many of you guys ever heard this line growing up? You're in a disagreement with your parents, or you're, you're discussing something, or you're about to get in trouble, and you're having a discussion with your parents, and you're, you ask your parents why, and their response is, because I said so. Oh, like, literally, people are already finishing my thoughts. All right, so give me hands. Okay, good, good majority of the room. Okay. All right, how many of you guys, have, if your parents in here, have used that line with your kids? Okay, a, a couple of honest hands go up. Okay, all right, all right. So let me ask this: when you were when you were a kid, right, or when you were usually it's the teenage years that that line is most famously used. When you were a kid, how did you feel when your parents used that line with you? I'm getting like uh, right, didn't really care for it much. Um, I know I hated it. Personally, um, I used to always think to myself, that's not a real answer, you know, like, like if I were to write that down, like if a teacher were to ask me a question, why, an opinionated question, like, why do you think, you know, uh, the United States was successful in entering World War II? If you responded with, because I said so, you know, it's not going to fly. You know, if you're in a court of law and a judge is asking you why you did what you did, and it's like, because I felt like it, because I said so, it's not really going to fly that way. And yet, right, when you're, when you're growing up, right, parents generationally have been using that line for years with their kids when they're out of lines. And I, and I started thinking about this past week when I was reading the text, because what we're going to see is <laughs> Paul's basically going to kind of drop that line with the church at Corinth. But I started thinking to myself, like, why do parents do this? Because if we universally hated it when we were kids, and then a lot of you guys, you didn't raise your hands yet because you you're not parents yet, but you're likely going to use that line at some point with your kids when you're older. I, I was trying to think, like, why do parents do this? And I, as, a, as a father myself and as a parent, I think, and I'm simply speculating here, but we invest a lot of time in our kids, we invest a lot of time, energy, money into our kids. And so for you guys that are maybe when I drop this line and you're like already, you can just like feel like that little bit of tension and anger swelling up against your dad or your mom or whoever used that line with you. Let me just say this. Um, it can be really, really hard as a parent sometimes to invest so much into your kids and get nothing in response. Like not a, a thank you, not a, an appreciation. 
And so when these types of things come up as a parent, it can, it, it's possible for, for us as parents to kind of lose sight of our responsibility to God, which is to steward and to shepherd the heart of our children as God's children and not our own. And therefore, when that, when that happens, there's this tendency to demand respect from our kids, to demand that they act and respond a certain way to where we, we lose sight of the fact that really, you know, my entire job as a parent is to help my children to realize that I'm not the hero of their story, Jesus is. And when things get really hard, it's a lot easier to yell because I said so than it is to shepherd and probe and dig at your kid's heart. And I think one of the, the big things we're going to see this morning in, in our text as we're kind of processing through this is we're going to see Paul respond to the church at Corinth and the issues that they have going on as a father. As, as we've said over the course of the last month or two, what we've seen is there's a lot of disunity and, and there's really a combative spirit going on inside of this church. They're all arguing with one another. They're arguing over which leaders to follow and why. They're arguing over the best way to do ministry. There's just a lot of tension and um, just combativeness inside of this church. And I actually really think, you know, studying this letter to the church at Corinth is really, really timely with us because at least in my lifetime, this is the most combative season in our culture in the U.S. that I've ever lived through. I mean, I remember right before COVID started talking to Ivan, and we're here recording uh, our service for that week, and Ivan's like, what do you think's going to come of all this? And, you know, I foolishly said to him, I was like, you know what? Like, the last time something really, really big happened in the U.S., it was 9-11, and I remember, like, tensions being really high then, and then, you know, that just really brought us together, and, like, there was, like, this unity that kind of grew inside the country out of that. And I was like, I think that's going to happen again. I am not a prophet, guys. <laughs> I could not have been more wrong in what I thought was going to happen. And, and this, this has bled over into spheres. It's bled over into families. It's bled over into friendships. It's bled over into the workplace. And it's bled over into the church in many ways. And so what we've been studying over the last several weeks, guys, is this opportunity right, to see and respond to a higher calling for us, if you were a follower of Christ, a higher calling in pursuit of Jesus, which seeks unity and harmony and praise of Christ above preference and desires and the way we focus on things. And, and as we see our text this morning, we're going to see that Paul is going to address the church at Corinth as their spiritual father. He's going to say, look, you guys are acting crazy. I've told you multiple times you're acting a fool, as my grandfather would say. You're fighting, you're creating divisions, you're breaking unity with one another, specifically over which leader to follow, which is insanity, because we don't care which one of us you choose. And in that, we're going to see this, this idea of Paul's discourse on wisdom and talking through all this. And it's clear that there is a faction inside of the church that does not think much of Paul and they're attempting to undermine him. So Paul knows that as he's writing this letter to the church at Corinth, 
what he's going to see is that they're pushing back on him because they're so committed to their factions, they're so committed to their position, they're so committed to what is going on with their preferences that they're going to start trying to undermine even Paul's authority in their life. This guy who had lived with them for 18 months, who had invested all this time with them, who had cared for them, who had shepherded their souls, who had been there and served with their families, they're going to start saying, yeah, that guy, that guy's crazy. Don't follow him. He's, he's not worthy of following because of what he's done. And so Paul, in chapter 4, kind of wraps up his argument against their combative, their combative spirit and their disunity with four things. So these are the four things we're going to see in our text this morning. The first thing is he's going to ask them to remember again who leaders really are. And he talked about that in chapter three, but he's saying, hey, if you are following leaders inside of the church, they're servants, servants and stewards. Then he's going to move on and talk about how they need to be reminded of or remember their commitment to God's word first and foremost. So that as they follow leaders, those leaders are only to be followed in so much as they follow God and his word. And that if leaders transgress or move outside of God and his word, that those leaders are not worthy of being followed any longer because God's word is the standard that we're to follow. Then he's going to attack the pride that had kind of moved into this church with sarcasm. And then lastly, right, he's going to just tell them, I am your father. And yes, that is a play on Star Wars. I'm a huge Star Wars geek. I love it. I know that next week uh, Isaiah Fetterman is going to preach for us, and he's going to tell terrible lies to you guys about the first three movies of Star Wars being good enough and better than the other ones, and they're not. Four through six are the best. Eight doesn't exist. I will fight you to the death on that. Eight does not exist. Didn't happen. But that is a play on that, and, and that Paul is going to... I've touched some nerves, by the way. I can just tell by, by talking that way about number eight. I, will, I would love to sit down with you over a cup of coffee and explain to you why number eight's not a real Star Wars movie sometime. Okay, my wife is shaking her head at me. She's like, do not get him started on that movie. It's terrible. So, but he's going to finish bringing them back to this idea of, hey, like, I, I loved you guys. I cared for you. I was the first one to show up in your city and share the gospel with you. And because of that, I, I have a fatherly commitment to you guys that I love and care for who you are and what God is doing in, in your life. Don't forget this. So let's look at these first five verses and, and kind of unpack this, this final argument that Paul is making to us about divisions and a combative spirit. He said, this is how one should regard us. He's talking about leaders inside of the church. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. 
then each one will receive his condemnation, commendation from God. So this is a rehashing really in many ways of what we talked about last week in chapter three. Um, Paul basically said last week, leaders inside of the church are ultimately servants. And if they're not acting that way, they're not true leaders. That ultimately pastors, leaders, whatever title you want to give a leader inside of the church, that they are predominantly called to be servants of God's people first and foremost. And that word servant in the Greek meant under rower or someone who aids another's work. So they're not even doing their own work. They're doing someone else's work for them. And then he, he also goes on to say, now not only are pastors and leaders inside of the church supposed to be servants, but they're also called to be stewards. And a steward inside of a kind of a, a first century uh, Greek home was still a servant, but it was a high ranking servant who was kind of in charge of all the other servants so that the master didn't have to constantly be telling people what to do. If any of you guys have ever watched that show, Downton Abbey, it was kind of the guy who was in charge of everyone else in the basement. And he, he kind of told them what to do, and I'm blanking on his name right now. But that was kind of the idea of what was going on here, is that the, the, the steward was in charge of running everything else, but he was managing the affairs not for himself but for the household. For his master. And so what Paul is saying here is like, look, if I'm the steward or Apollos is the steward or whoever you want to talk about, we're just managing Jesus's affairs. This isn't, this is, you guys have made this about us and we're servants and even the highest ranking servants are still simply stewards of God's gospel, of what he's done for weary and broken sinful people through Christ. Like that, that is our sole job here. And Paul shares this again because he wants them to understand that he is doing Jesus's work. He's called to do it. And basically he's saying this. And this is, you know, if you are in any level of leadership, you need to hear Paul's argument here because this is going to apply to you even if you are not a leader inside of the church. Paul's basically saying, guys, I plant churches and preach the gospel for Jesus, not for your approval. Everything I do is because Jesus has asked it of me. I didn't show up in Corinth and remain there for 18 months so that you guys would make a statue for me. So that you guys remember me as your favorite pastor. I was there for the glory of God and his son, Jesus Christ. That's why I did this. For Paul, this meant that he didn't need to worry about those in the church at Corinth that were disapproving of him or his ministry philosophy because he was confident that what he was doing was what Christ had asked of him. He is after God's approval because he's a simple steward and God is the master. Now, let me just say this. I think one of the, the biggest things I see kind of consistently over the ebbs and flows of culture and time, the, a consistent theme I just see in the human race, I see it in myself, I see it in my family, I see it in our church as we've grown over time, is that we can really struggle with the reality of what Paul's talking about here. And what I mean by that is 
I would guess that every one of us in this room desire to be liked by other people. It's kind of a, a, a universal human desire is to be liked by other people. And, and, and at face value, by the way, I, I would go so far as to say it would probably be unwise for you desire to be unliked by other people. It's like, yeah, I just want everyone to hate me. You know, like, okay, what's wrong? can we get you some counseling? You know, like, what, what do we need to do? But oftentimes this desire to be liked by other people falls into a category or an under, under an umbrella that we would decidedly determine to be unbiblical. Right, if you turn over to, to Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25 with me, Solomon says this to his son when he's just writing these, these notes of wisdom. But he, he says this, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Right, so here's what he's communicating to his son. He's saying, and, and this is what the Bible labels this desire to be liked by others above all else. It doesn't call it codependency, which is what psychology today would call it, or it wouldn't call it, you know, uh, a strong desire to need friends or whatever. It, it would describe it as fear of man. And, and what it does, according to Solomon, is it actually creates a trap. It gets you stuck in it because the reality is, is if you choose to need man's approval over God's approval for you, you will constantly be working for that for the rest of your life and you are trapped and ensnared to it. And let me just say this maybe on top of it. You will never succeed because human beings are not monolithic. And whenever you're making one person happy, you're likely making someone else unhappy. And so the point that Solomon is making and that we see here, and really it's ultimately the point that Paul's trying to make to this church, this group of people that he loves deeply, is if I run after your approval and your acceptance, I'm enslaving myself to you, and I am a slave to Christ. Right? Jesus himself even addresses this in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, he's talking to his disciples about not being fearful. And when you get to verse 28, he says this, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Here's what, here's what Jesus is ultimately saying. I know you guys have a strong desire to be liked by the culture around you. And for some, for, for some of us, there's a very real reality that the level of persecution that we might face is real and difficult to the point even, according to Jesus here, maybe even of death. And he's saying to us still, even on top of that, fear God more. For your very soul is at stake. And in him, you'll find true love and acceptance. As I've been in pastoral ministry for about 11 years now, and I think one of the most difficult things of being a pastor is not the hours, which are constantly changing. It's not how difficult sometimes uh, creating a sermon every week can be. It's not um, dealing with uh, money issues for the church or doing all the things we want to do in ministry. And those are certainly can be stressors, but every job has stressors. But in my estimation, both from my own time in ministry 
And in my experience of seeing others in ministry over time, one of the biggest things leaders in ministry face is this desire to keep you guys happy. It's one of the most difficult things I battle with. Pastor Daniel battles it. Pastor Theo battles it. Pastor Stephen battles it. That anyone in leadership's desire to make you happy, sometimes even when your desires go against directly what God wants to do. And it's a, it's a constant battle for us, and it's a constant battle for you even if you are not in leadership. Right? This desire to, to be liked, to be pleasing to those around us, above maybe even what God says is the right thing to do in a particular situation. And what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth here, as there are some even inside of that church who are directly trying to undermine his ministry, he's able to withstand the pressure that they are placing on him not because he doesn't care what they think, because he does. He loves them. He cares for them. We're going to see that later on in the chapter. But he cares more about obeying God and doing what God might have for us. Andrew Wilson describes Paul's response to the church at Corinth in this way. He says, his response is simple. In the end, my ministry, my trusteeship, if you like, of the mysteries of God in Christ will be judged by God not by you. I know that some of you don't approve of the way I approach these matters, but ultimately, I don't work for you. I work for God. I am waiting for his judgment. Church, that's not a message just for Paul. That's a message for each and every one of us who declares that we are a follower of Jesus. Right? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that we are ambassadors for Christ and ministers of the message of reconciliation. One of the things I try to remind us regularly as a church is that all of us are in full-time ministry if we are disciples of Jesus. All of us. And this attitude that Paul has of choosing Christ and obedience and fidelity to Christ over a desire to be liked and approved of inside of the church is a call to all of us. And God's encouragement to us is careful far more about God and his word than you care about the opinion and approval of man. Because the opinion and approval of man is fleeting and fickle, but God's love for us in Christ is eternal. And it stands the test of time as if through fire, as Paul shared last week in chapter 3. So he starts out by just saying, Hey, church, remember who we are. We're servants. We're stewards. Whether you're in leadership or not, we're simply servants and stewards of what God has called us to do. And then he's going to say this, starting in verse 6. He's going to call us to not just remember who we are, but what we're supposed to be following, and that's God's word. He says this in verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Paul's saying, hey, look, I'm using Apollos, who you love dearly, and myself as examples to you. Why? so that you might respond appropriately to these issues that have crept into the church. And what you need to do 
is stop using human wisdom and success and your approval and who you appreciate more or what you prefer. And you need to go to Scripture to find out what we're supposed to be doing. And you need to test your leaders, not by your preferences, but according to Scripture. And where they're doing what God asks of them. And what this will ultimately do, if we as a church were to walk out of here this morning saying, I'm committing to God's word. I'm committing to living this out. I'm committing with my brother and sister sitting next to me or the person behind me to live with fidelity to Christ, to love God and his word more deeply than I care about the opinion of others. Here's what would start happening to us, guys. We would die to self and follow God's will. And in following God's will, we would see a level of unity inside the body of Christ that we dare imagine. More than we could ever dream would we see a sincere love because we would lay down our preferences, we would lay down the things that cause us to divide and break unity because we would simply be after making much of Jesus which is what we're called to in the first place. And he says the only way we get there is with a commitment to God and his word, allowing that to be our centerpiece of what guides us. And it's one of the things that we communicate regularly here. I mean, it's one of our values, which I remember when we were kind of crafting our values here as a church and we wrote the Bible down. It's like, it's kind of silly for a church to say that the Bible is a value. But the reality is, is we need to make it abundantly clear that we are unapologetically committed to God's word here. And if you are not committed to God's word, I have a prediction for you. At some point, we're going to say something from the stage. We're going to do something as a ministry. We're going to do something as a group of people that you're probably not going to like. And hear me when I say this, because I say this to you out of love. If you ask me to choose you or the Bible, I will choose the Bible. I will choose fidelity to God and his word. Not because I don't love you, but because I do. Because what we need more than anything is God's word. I mean, think about what Paul says when, he, when he's writing his letter to the Romans. Right? He says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that, that we are called to be renewed in our minds. Right? If, you, if you read his letter to the Colossians in chapter 3, he calls the church there to set their mind on the things of God. Church, how do we get renewed minds? How do we set our mind on the things above unless we know what the things above are? And that's in God's word, where he has revealed it to us. Both the Old Testament and the New is God's revelation to us. And God's word is the standard of truth for us, not the world and not what it's trying to push. And so here, here's maybe an encouragement to take away from this morning. Right? How committed are you to the word of God? And I don't mean that in some like judgmental way where you're supposed to be keeping track of exactly what you're doing. But are you just, do you just have a view of God's word in its proper place? 
Right? When, you, when you think of something, when you address something, when you see a hot button issue pop up in politics or in the office or in, your, in school or whatever it may be, when these things pop up, what pops up first in your mind? Is it your opinion or someone else's opinion that you saw on a talk show or, on a, or you heard on the radio or you listened to a podcast or is it God's word? Because guys, I've been a follower of Jesus long enough to know that I have found nothing that God's word does not speak to at this point. Maybe not directly, but at minimum in principle, God's word speaks to everything. And there is nothing new under the sun. And this is why we do things like encourage you to be in the scriptures regularly. This is why we preach through the Bible verse by verse. It's why in our gospel communities, we study God's word together and we dig deeper into the text that we talked about on a Sunday morning. It's why we have groups that lead Bible studies separately in men's and women's time. It's why that we encourage you to have a Bible reading plan and to be uh, doing devotionals regularly. If you want to be a part of that, see Isaiah Fetterman in the back. Raise your hand, Isaiah. He would love for you to be a part of that devotional group with him. But we don't do this as a discipline solely for the sake of checking it off a list. No, we go to God's word to have our minds renewed by him and so that we might set our minds on the things above. And when we do that, we start bringing clarity into our own lives about what matters. And when we start seeing clarity about who God is and his love for us and what he desires of us as we live faithfully to him, a lot of the things that tend to get underneath my skin and irritate me just tend to not matter anymore. When I tend to have my mind renewed and centered upon myself as being a servant, I tend to get less irritated when people don't serve me the way I want to be. Because I'm looking for opportunities to be what God has asked of me. And so we see here as, as Paul's dealing with all these issues inside of this church, he's just saying, hey guys, like we've lost our way. We're just servants and stewards. And we've lost our standard to God's word. Let's, let's get back to that. Let's get back to God's word. Let's get back to serving others. Let's get back to stewarding the message of the gospel and caring most deeply about that. And we will see God's word go forth in this city. Now, what Paul does next is he's going to use sarcasm to attack this spirit of pride that had entered the church. And for some of you guys that may be like myself that are fluent in sarcasm, you're going to love this section. You're like, this is, this is going to be great, right? Because my wife's all the time, you know, telling me like when, I, when I'm dealing with my youngest son, my youngest son is, is very, very similar to me and very different from me in many ways. And when we tell him no, he has developed a coping mechanism for not getting his way. And, and all children do this. Some like fall into line in obedience immediately because they don't want to make anyone upset. Some throw temper tantrums and scream no, and there's a battle of the will going on. And then my, my, my youngest son has chosen a third way, which I call the way of the psychopath, which is to scream out loud at himself to do the thing you're asking to do because he's screaming at himself to change his own will. 
So like if I say something like, hey, Josiah, no, you can't glue your uh, art projects to the wall of our new home. He'll look at you and then he'll start screaming, I never want to do that. I don't want to do it. I can't do it. You guys are laughing. It is not funny at home. And I love my wife so dearly because like she'll she'll get down on eye level with him and she'll be like, Josiah, we're not saying you can't you can't do your art projects. We're just saying that you can't glue them to the wall of our new house. My method <laughs> tends to be a little different until Jackie calls me to repentance. I'm like, yeah, buddy, you're right. We hate you here. You'll never get your way. I'm glad you realized that, right? My, my method is like that of Paul, right? Where I want to address with sarcasm. And so here's what maybe we can, we can learn from this as we dive through this section of text this morning. Sarcasm has its place. But what I need to see is what we're going to see at the end, that there's also like something to bring on the back end of the sarcasm, not just bringing sarcasm into it. But let's look at what Paul does here, because this can be a, a pretty confusing passage as you're looking through it, where you might be questioning, what is Paul doing here? What is going on? So let's look at it. He says, already you have all you want. Sarcasm. Right? Already you have become rich. More sarcasm. Right? Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. So some of us in the room, right, we tend to view sarcasm as being really good, me, right? My wife, bad, and we're a great team. But Paul does use it as a tool here because he's, what he's ultimately doing is he's contrasting their behavior with that of the very same people they claim to follow and support. Right? They become prideful and combatant, yet they claim to be strong followers of Apollos or they claim to be strong followers of Paul or strong followers of Peter. And basically Paul's saying, yeah, you don't mimic them very well though. Because they don't live like you are living at all. They don't believe that's the way to do things at all. They don't believe in approaching life this way at all, right? He says, you are rich. Here's basically what he's saying that. He, he's saying to them, hey, you are acting as if you have everything you already want and you don't need God. You, you look out on the landscape of the world around you and you're like, yeah, this is better than eternity with Christ. He says, you are kings. Is this the kingdom you want? I mean, I think if nothing cuts you to the core right there, and as someone, like, I've, I've mentioned this multiple times, I love America, love it. My all-time favorite commercial was the commercial with the dude in the Dodge Charger running, like, charging down the British on the open battlefield. But guys, 
And I'm not really interested in ruling and reigning in this kingdom over the kingdom of heaven. Like, I'm not here to tell you to love America, hate America, or be indifferent about America, but I am telling you this. Heaven will be a whole lot better. The kingdom of God is a whole lot better than any kingdom will ever offer here on this earth. And that's exactly what Paul's saying to them. He's saying, meanwhile, the leaders you claim to follow, they're approaching life completely different from you. Right? While you're being claimed wise and you're addressing all of these hot-button issues in Corinth and you're following human wisdom, they look at the leaders of the church and they call us fools, yet you claim to follow us. Right? They, they think that you guys are strong and that you have your act together, and they look at us and they think we're weak. Right? The world looks at you and they, they honor you for the way that you are interacting with the world around you, but they look at the church and they just dishonor us. He says, we as leaders are treated as scum of the earth when the world looks at us. But he's got a point here. It ties directly to what he had just said in verses 6 through 7. If we follow Scripture, if we follow the words of Jesus, the pattern laid out before us is one of humility and service, not pride and lordship over others. And if that is the case, We'll be, we will look like fools. We'll be called weak. We will be called dishonored. As a couple months ago, I went to something, and it was in a, in a one week in a one week span. I got yelled by one group of pastors and one group of people that I was not strong enough on vaccines and masks from the pulpit. It's called weak, ineffectual. The exact next week, to the day, I had the complete opposite thing said to me. I'm not strong enough at saying no to masks. I'm not strong enough saying no to the vaccines. I'm not strong enough to doing all these things. This passage gives me great comfort and hope. Because the world looks at us as we seek for fidelity to Christ. And they'll call us fools. They'll call us weak will dishonor us. We can make much of Jesus together because that is the way that Jesus lived his own life. Despised and rejected of man, they did not esteem him but considered him stricken. And yet he is our king. Right, Andrew Wilson says this of Paul's use of sarcasm here. He says, what he is doing without ever mentioning the word cross in his argument is reminding them at the heart of the gospel is the shamed, brutalized, and humiliated son of man who had nowhere to lay his head. And that Christians, we are called to take our cue from him rather than from those who the world elevates around us and admires. And Paul goes, look, you guys love Apollos, you love Peter, you love me. We all just love Jesus. We want to be like him. 
and elevating anything above that is foolishness compared to knowing Christ. And this is why Paul is so thorough. I mean, he takes four full chapters in this letter to address the disunity that was going on inside of this church. Because church, if we become like the Corinthians, prideful, boasters, broken, disunified, we make a mockery of the cross of Jesus Christ. We rob it of its power, as he said in chapter 2. We make it ineffectual. We make the suffering servant out to be nothing more than a fool who died for no reason. Paul calls us to examine ourselves, examine our pride, reconcile with one another, even when we don't want to, even in differences of opinion, to respect authority, most of all Jesus's and his word to us. And in that, we honor him and our witness is held intact for Christ's glory. Because guys, it's all about Jesus. If we are here for any other reason than to worship and make much of Christ, we have failed. That's why I love that song we sang there at the end before we read the word and started in our time of preaching this morning. It's an oldie. Some of you guys were like in diapers when that song came out. But he says, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. We can lose our way, but God is there available to us, and it's all about him. And so Paul calls us, even in his sarcasm, (laughs) to be reminded of why we're here and then look, look at what he says here in these last several verses. I'm going to read just verse 14 to 15 for you. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He says to them, I am your father. Notice how his language changes. He goes from using sarcasm, not to, by the way, I mean, it might poke at him a little bit, but really to help them see the absurdity of what they're doing. That's, that's where sarcasm is effective, right? And pointing us out when we're prideful and acting crazy, right? Even my wife uses sarcasm when I'm acting really, really crazy, which is a lot, actually. Just like, hey, like, I remember a couple years ago, you guys might feel this way, but I get overly involved in sports teams. And I, I just, there's something about Virginia Tech and that school that just, you know, an inappropriate level of anger arises inside of me. I see a thumbs up from the UVA grad there. There we go. God loves tech grads too, Casey. Sorry. Um, and so anyway, I grew up in Virginia and like I grew up a WVU fan. I really, and I, I'm sitting there and, um, the referees are cheating to help the Hokies beat WVU uh, on, a, on a Saturday night game, and I'm just livid, and I, I think this team. I'm like, this, you're talking about people that 
that Jesus bled and died for. I'm like, thanks for the gospel lesson right now when I'm acting irrational. Thank you. But I needed it. Right? And the reality is not only, not only does Paul call out the irrational behavior, but then look at, what, look at, look at his change in language to them. He's not trying to shame them. He says, I write these things not to make you ashamed, but to admonish you, to encourage you. So you could see the folly of what you're doing. And he calls them his beloved children. Like, I love you. you know, guys, you know what is so crazy about that story I shared with you earlier about my youngest son, Josiah? Is as irritating as he is, I love him. Only a parent can say that about something like that. Like most of you guys, like if you were around Josiah when he was doing something, I was like, thank goodness I get to go home eventually. Like his parents will come back and I get to leave this. Parents stick it out because they love you. They care about you. That's exactly the way Paul felt about this church. He says, you may have countless guides who teach you about God, who teach you about his word, who point you to Jesus, but I'm still dead. My kids are going to have countless guides over the course of their life who are going to teach them how to do all sorts of things. They're going to teach them how to be better at, at English grammar than their dad is. They're going to teach them how to do math. They're going to teach them how to, to do all sorts of things like play basketball because I'm 5'6 and can't hit a shot. There's all sorts of guides they are going to have over the course of their life, but at the end of the day, I'm still dead. And I love them and I care for them, and I want God's best for them, just like Paul does for this church. And he goes on to say to them later on, like, you're going to see this. Like, I, I know it sounds like I'm being harsh right now, but you will see my love for you when I come to visit you. And this is why he approaches them as a tender father, just like Jesus does in Matthew chapter 7. If you're familiar with that passage, right, look at what Jesus says. Starting in verse 11. He's really just encouraging everyone who's listening to him at the Sermon on the Mount, go to God when you have needs. Go to him. He wants to give to you. He wants to provide for you because he loves and cares for you. He says, if you then, and he's talking about dads. It's like, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? He's like, look, you guys are terrible parents and still do good things for your kids. How much more might God do for you when, when he is a good father? Guys, God is a good dad. He is. And I know that is hard for some of us because some of us didn't have a good example of a good dad. I, I get it. Like my, my own relationship with my own father who I love dearly could be considered up and down at best. And I look back on it now as a father, I'm like, he was trying really, really hard and I have so much respect and more grace for my dad. But it was, it was all over the place. You know what I never questioned though was whether my dad actually cared about me or not. Maybe questioned his methods in showing that care. But I never questioned that. And some of us may not even have that story. Some of us may have an absent dad or a dad who doesn't care. Here's what you need to hear this morning. 
You have a father, and he is the creator of the universe who cares about you. And he is a good dad who is there and available to you whenever, wherever. And it's not just that he begrudgingly waits there the way that I sometimes in my selfishness begrudgingly deal with my youngest son. No, he desires that you come to him. He desires that you bring your cares and your anxieties and your fears to him so that he might lovingly carry you through them. And because God is a good dad, here's what I'll tell you about anyone I've ever seen. Jackie and I, when we were about to be new parents, we found all of the parents that we could, that we thought were good parents, and we just peppered them with questions. How'd you do this? How'd you do this? We need to know. We don't know what we're doing. Help. And here's what I saw consistently in kids that had good dads and good moms. They loved them. They obeyed their parents. They weren't perfect, but the pattern of their life was love, obedience, respect. And when they were in trouble, they didn't run from their parents, they ran to them. Guys, you need not run from God, you need to run to him. His grace and his mercy and his love for you are far beyond anything you could dare, dream, or imagine. As Paul writes this letter calling out the disunity and the dysfunction and the combativeness inside of this church, he's saying to them, guys, don't run to Apollos or me. And if you do, only run to us because you see that we're imitating our dad, who is God in heaven. And that's who we want you to run to. Church, we are called to be spiritual parents. All of us. Here's the deal. Like, I'm going to have to give an account one day for the way that, that I pastored this church as a spiritual father. But everyone in this room will have an impact on someone's life and be a spiritual parent to them. We are all called to parent and shepherd and love one another. And in that, we're called to be different patient, loving, unified, gracious to one another. And Paul says we can do that by renewing our minds, by remembering that we're servants and stewards of God's mission, not our own. If Aletheia Church were to close doors tomorrow, you could go find another church to be a servant and steward in because the church of God will not fail. And yes, I love and believe in this church, and I believe God wants to do great things through us as we carry the gospel forward in Gainesville to the world around us. But at the end of the day, the success and the rise and fall of this organization is a small blip compared to the grandiose nature of Christ and his church. And we are simply servants and stewards of that message we're called to remember, are we committed to God's word? Guys, I'm going to say something here. And I wrestled all week with whether I was going to say this or not, but I really felt like the Lord was laying it on my heart to do this. You are being discipled by something. Constantly. And you really have two choices. To let that either be God and his word or the world. I am disgusted with myself. I'm disgusted with a lot of what I see around me 
from dear brothers and sisters in Christ inside of the church. Not, not just this church, but I, I, I've been in a number of ministries over the years now. I have a lot of contacts. Guys, we are not called to be discipled by CNN, Fox News, the media, Facebook, TikTok, Snapchat, Twitter. I don't know what newfangled app there is that might be discipling you right now. Reddit. That should not be our primary tool of discipleship. And as I was studying this past week, I was deeply convicted that I allow myself to be way too swayed by the wisdom of this world over the, over the wisdom of God. And I think all of us, if we took a step back patiently and hear, hear me saying this as someone that is desperately in need of God's grace in this just as much as you are, we need to have our minds renewed in a new clarity of God and his word because that is what God wants to be, use us with. And here's the good news. As we saw earlier, we have a good father. He knows me. Dude, you're, you're being discipled by podcasts way too much in the opinions of man more than you are by, the, by my word. Repent. My grace is sufficient for you. We repent of this, and then we go to Jesus, and we follow his example. The same example that Paul shares in Philippians chapter 2. Right? This is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Starting in verse 5, right? as Paul calls us, as he calls the Corinthians to service right, and stewardship, right? he doesn't ask us to do anything that Jesus himself didn't do. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus did it all. That's who we run after. And even when Paul calls them to imitate him, he calls them to imitate him because he imitates Jesus. 